Guilt is feeling bad about what we have done. And shame is feeling bad about who we are. So our actions Mm -hmm. versus our identity. Guilt is related to our actions. Shame is related to our identity. But there's a more precise definition, not too long, but a little longer than the first one. Guilt is an awareness of having violated some objective standard. Shame is an awareness of having failed in someone else's eyes. So again, we come back to guilt is related to our actions. Shame is related to our identity, but more specifically, shame is related to our relationship with ourselves, with God, and with others. Hi, welcome to Wild and Beautiful. We're Joanna Hyatt and Lauren Enriquez, your co-hosts who every week are helping you live out your faith in a way that's biblically rooted, but culturally relevant. So last week we talked about social media as being like the seventh level of hell, 10th level of hell, Dante's Inferno. You know what I think another level is? Shopping with small children. If you want to stick to a budget... Or simultaneously, if you want to just grab whatever's on the rack and blow your budget, take a toddler. Does she have color preferences? Nice. Oh. No, no. We were in the dressing room, and at that point, she decided she both wanted to put on the new dress and wear nothing. Oh. So she was standing there screaming at me in her underwear, just scream. So finally, I muscled the dress on her. We go to the checkout. I've got arms full of clothes. I took all four girls shopping. I hate mm-hmm. shopping as a human being in general, and then to have to do it with multiple people. And I'm just standing there with a the child screaming, screaming in the store as I'm paying. And, you know, everyone, I can't hear the lady. She keeps talking to me. I keep going, what? What? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I don't know what. She kept, she asked for like so many of my contact yeah. forms of information. I thought, at this point, lady, you could ask for my social security and yeah. I would give it to you because I don't actually know what you're needing. Yeah. It was awful. It was awful. This is why I put myself through an equally inconvenient problem, but I'm so opposed to going out shopping with my kids that I will order like 12 things online when I need one, figure out which one. I should have done that. No, I mean, I don't recommend that either because then you're, you're left with like all these returns and I don't know about you, but I'm really bad at making returns, even when it just involves dropping something off at UPS. So Jose gets to be the designated return person. He tells everyone, I'm really good at buying things, and he's really good at returning them. <laughs> I mean, lately, I feel like Andrew's really good at making the money, and I'm really good at spending it. <laughs> that Ooh. works, too. Which I really don't like that stereotype cliche of like, oh, the wife is the one who spends. I'm like, well, it's, it's just a job. It's, a job it's what's happening. It's what's happening you know, those someone days. Someone has to. Trying to outfit exactly. all these kids. Well, they're rude because they all decided to have a growth spurt oh, at the geez. same time. I was like, really? Really? We couldn't We couldn't have staggered this. We couldn't have done it when we were around where all of our yeah. clothes are. Because if you've been tracking, you know we're in Louisiana for three months. So all of a sudden, I'm looking at everybody walking out the door for church and dresses are just a uh-huh. little short. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I had to go to Target and buy a few new things for Sophie recently and – she's two, she's not even three, but the size at target that fits her is size five. So I'm pretty sure that something is wrong with targets sizing. If anyone from targets listening, you need to fix your sizes for little girls. I can attest to this. Cause I looked at pictures. <clears throat> yeah. Of, she's not of the size of a five. That, that was no, uh, no, 
No. And those dresses were not the mm-hmm. size of a five-year-old. So this is not us endorsing or promoting Target. This is us telling Target, get your sizing right. Get your stuff Thanks. together, we'll Target. Talk. Speaking of being on the Target, how's that for a segue? <laughs> we're talking about shame today. We're talking about shame, which obviously relates to parenting, because when you're standing in a checkout line, a child is screaming, you have to fight not feeling shame at your parenting skills. (laughs) Uh, But we thought because this is such a serious topic, we would do something really constructive and intellectual. And we Googled, we Googled famous quotes on shame. I'm not sure these are famous, but here's what came up. Okay, here's one. All religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays, which is going to bring up a good distinction between guilt and shame. We will get to that. Then Louis Armstrong had this one. If you still have to ask, shame on you. <laughs> so, of course, I had to ask because I'm like, what are, what are you talking Remind about, you, Mr. Armstrong? And I know. He was talking about jazz. If you still have to ask what jazz is, shame on you. What even is jazz, though? Zilt, shame yep. on you. Shame on you. It's not a walk of shame if you leave with a moonwalk. Seems legit. That quote is attributed to no <laughs> one. <laughs> Thank you, internet. Let's see. Uh, I feel shame not for the wrong things I have done, but for the right things that I have failed mm. to do. Which is good, but also I thought, well, that just brings up a whole host of shame because I could come up with a ton of things I haven't done that I probably should have done. Actions and omissions. Actions and omissions. Okay, this one, there is no shame in beginning again for you get a chance to build bigger and better than before. Build back better, which is not necessarily true in terms of sometimes you shouldn't begin again. You should just walk away. Just walk away. Hey, that's also a thing. Walk away. There's a walk away movement. Look at that. We just pulled in two relevant political references. Bill and we're not endorsing away, either one Which of is them. ironic. Nope. Nope. Uh, ben Franklin, whatever is begun in anger ends in mm. shame. Was that? It depends I'm on like, the anger. Mm, that, is it just? Yeah, it relates anger? a lot to my parenting, oh, okay. though. <laughs> whatever be, we could add that word into the quote. Whatever begins in parenting anger ends in shame. True. Although, again, we're going to talk about the difference between shame mm-hmm. and guilt. Shame and guilt. Okay, here's uh, a last one for you. That moment of shame when you walk up to an automatic door and it doesn't open for you. <laughs> you know, when you are when you were a kid and you weren't heavy enough to get some of those doors? Oh. I don't know if that's how it still works, but it used to be that you had to be, weigh a certain amount to get those sliding doors to open. And I'd sit there and jump. <laughs> It's like, it's like when you're trying to pull on the door, yes. it says push. You're just like pulling, pulling, pulling. I'm pretty sure there was a far side comic and it was funny. And then I realized, oh, like that actually really happens. Yes. <laughs> and then of course there's the most famous one. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, mm-hmm. shame on me. And that one is attributed to Randall Terry, which I never knew that. <laughs> so, And this is Google. So who really knows? So take all of this with a grain of salt, because that's what we do here on this podcast. We just want to give you the very best information that you can Google. <laughs> that you can second guess. <laughs> yeah. You can second guess. But it does lead us into, we are talking about shame, which is actually very serious. And and we're going to start off with what is the distinction between shame and guilt? Because a lot of times those are used interchangeably, but they shouldn't be because they are distinctly mm-hmm. different. 
That's right. Well, I use the cheat sheet, a great cheat sheet in general for any question about morality in life is Father Mike Schmitz. He is with Ascension Presents. He has a Bible in a Year podcast. He has a YouTube series where he explains all kinds of questions about life and Catholicism and morality. And he has a video called Shame Versus Guilt. So there's a long and a short way to distinguish shame and guilt. The short way is guilt is feeling bad about what we have done. And shame is feeling bad about who we are. So our actions Mm -hmm. versus our identity. Guilt is related to our actions. Shame is related to our identity. But there's a more precise definition, not too long, but a little longer than the first one. Guilt is an awareness of having violated some objective standard. Shame is an awareness of having failed in someone else's eyes. So, again, we come back to guilt is related to our actions. Shame is related to our identity. But more specifically, shame is related to our relationship with ourselves, with God, and with others. Whereas guilt is more of an internal feeling that comes from our own perception of how we uh, have behaved in the sight of some objective standard, but not necessarily of another person. And and I would say guilt usually accompanies the sense of, or goes hand in hand with, I need to change my behavior. I need to do something different. What I did wasn't right, didn't work, because based on this objective standard, I know that there's a better way. Whereas shame is so often believing that we are unlovable and we reject all of who we are. Like I, I, Mm -hmm. I am wrong. Not what I did was wrong, but like I, my existence, everything about me is wrong because of oftentimes this behavior, because of something we've done or even something that has been done Mm -hmm. to us. You know, you see this a lot of times uh, with victims of abuse, they take on this sense of shame mm-hmm. about who they are or their body uh, or you know their involvement or existence because of something that was out of their control actually and was done to yes. them. Yes. Guilt can be good for us if we're experiencing it in the right context. So if we actually did violate God's standard, guilt is good because it is going to be that feeling that prompts us to seek reconciliation with him. So some we've somehow ruptured our relationship with him and we we need him to heal it. So guilt is that feeling that's going to prompt us to go and make reconciliation and get things back on the right track. And then hopefully once you've reconciled with God or your neighbor or wherever that relationship is ruptured or with yourself, then you can move on. Uh on a healthy path forward. And that action has kind of been redeemed and reconciled and left in the past. But shame is going to affect you in a way where you, like you said, you feel like you are the one who is broken or irredeemable or unlovable. And it takes more than, it takes a different type of uh, healing to fix shame. Shame also has a way of keeping us hooked into sin. Whereas guilt often causes us to turn from sin. So I think like in the case of, let's say, Mm -hmm. pornography, I spoke on this for a teaching series for Right Now Media. And I was talking about how oftentimes, you know, like in the case of pornography or, or some addictive behavior, we think, okay, well, I'm already terrible for doing this. So I might as well keep Mm -hmm. going versus, oh man, I feel convicted. How do I go about and change it? Interestingly enough, shame keeps us hooked in because we are looking at ourselves going, I am such an awful person 
that there's no redeeming this. There's no changing it. I can't change because I can't figure out how to change who I am at the core, since apparently the core Mm -hmm. of me is broken. And so I might as well just keep pursuing this destructive or addictive um, or harmful harmful behavior. And and again, the distinction is that shame judges our self-worth at the core Mm -hmm. of who we are. Shame whispers uh, the lies that the enemy wants us to believe, which is that you are unredeemable, that you are too much for the grace uh, of Jesus Christ, that uh, not just what you're doing, but just everything about you to your very fiber is unlovable. If people really knew who you are, who you are in the quiet secret moments of your heart and in your home, nobody would want you, including God. And that's, that's such a lie uh, that unfortunately keeps so many people. Yes. It's so true that shame can affect how we live out our lives. It can affect sin patterns, like you said. And the first place that we see shame is where we first see sin as well. Shame and sin are both tied to the lies that Satan tells us about who we are. Shame and sin enter the picture when we stop believing or understanding or knowing who we are in God and as creatures made in his image. And we start to believe the lie that Satan tells us that we don't know, we don't really we aren't really made in the image of God and that we don't really fully belong to God because where we see shame in scripture is in Genesis when we learn that when God created Adam and Eve and he said, this is good, Adam and Eve were naked and they didn't feel shame. It's really interesting and uh, worth noting that that detail is added because it doesn't just say they were naked. Mm-hmm. It says they were naked and did not feel shame because who God made them to be was there in its integrity. They understood not only who they were as creatures made in the image of God, but whose they were. They belonged to somebody who had created them out of love. And that knowledge that they were in right relationship with their creator gave them this confidence. They didn't feel a sense of shame about who they were. Lately, my two-year-old, I say lately, I mean like the last literal two days. (laughs) I don't know why, and I'm not going to psychoanalyze whether this has to do with a parenting failure of mine, but my two-year-old has come up to me like 12 times over the last 24 hours and gone, mommy, are you happy with me? And I'll say, Yeah, I'm so happy with you. And you're happy with my brothers and my poppy? Yep, I'm happy with them too. Okay. And then she gives me a big hug and just runs away happy. I don't know what's prompting her to ask me this. (laughs) Okay. The reason I just went gasped is because my three-year-old has been doing that. Mommy, are you happy with me? No way. Are you happy? Yeah. And it's kind of freaking us out. We're like, what? what Yeah, I asked Jose. I was like, "Uh, am I doing something that's making people feel that I'm unhappy with them? And he's like, I don't think so. So lately, though, I've responded with, because she'll ask it usually when she's gotten in trouble or she can tell I'm a little frustrated. and, And I've responded with, I'm unhappy, but I still love you. Or I'm happy with you. But even if I am frustrated or you have just, it does not change my love for you. And I don't know if she's getting yeah. to the three, but I'm so relieved that you maybe are same, have the same dysfunctional yeah, parenting. I'm clearly doing something uh, unbeknownst to myself that's making my two-year-old wonder if I'm happy with her. But I just thought as I was preparing for this episode, I was hmm. like, this is how we are with God. 
God, are you happy with me? And we wouldn't have to ask that if there weren't this other voice, this deceptive voice of Satan in our head all day long saying, he doesn't really love you because that's what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. He, mm-hmm. They said they mm-hmm. knew God had created them in love, was holding them in existence in love, had given them a garden with everything they would ever need. And what does Satan do? He comes along and says, no, God's trying to hold something back from you. He doesn't want you to be like him when in fact he had created them to be like him. Uh, So yeah, we have this childlike need to be affirmed and accepted all the time. And so kind of two things stood out to me there. One is in our relationship with God, where we should be driven to maintain that relationship and build it all the time because it helps us to maintain our identity in him and helps us to remember Mm -hmm. who we are in him. And then also in our relationship with others, maybe we can make an effort to go out of our way to help others feel accepted for who they are in in God as creations made in the image of God. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, I know there are people, and I've said this in the past too, who will say like, I don't care what people think of me. And the reality is that we do care. We all care and we care a lot, some more than others. But when we smile at someone or we compliment them genuinely, I think that this is a way of helping us to affirm the identity uh, of the the image of God in other people in a way that is especially probably helpful to people who may not have that identity deeply re- rooted in a relationship with God himself. And I'm thinking too, in actually in looking at our kids, that's the question we're asking, but we equate happiness with um, value. Like, God, if you're not happy with me, then it's me mm-hmm. who's wrong versus Sometimes we do things and, and because God loves us, he disciplines us. You know, scripture is God, our father coming into humanity and, and correcting and disciplining out of love to help there be growth towards life, towards freedom. But we often think, well, if you're not happy with me, you must Mm -hmm. not love me. And that's a lie too. In fact, you know, you can be frustrated with your kid. You can be even angry, righteously so. And still love your child. And I think that's, that is how God uh, approaches us. But unfortunately, we tell ourselves that our behavior is what denotes our value versus no, your value is the fact that you are made mm-hmm. in the image of God. And part of that is we live in a culture that has devalued humans. You know, we talk <laughs> about abortion a lot here because when you have devalued um, the most vulnerable the most innocent in society, and you have made their lives expendable, what you are promoting to everybody is that the value of who you are is based on what you add to society and how people Mm -hmm. feel about you. And so we internalize that because we think, well, you know, if I don't love my kid or if I don't want my kid or whatever, then it's okay for me to do this. Or if my situation is too hard, then it's okay for me to end my child's life. But the reality is that's placing value on that child based on things that they have no control of versus saying, nope, this is an incredible, unique, never before seen, never will be seen again human being. And they have value, has nothing to do with their conception, with their circumstances, uh, or with their Mm -hmm. future potential. And I think that that abortion culture, the culture that devalues, I mean, there's a war going on right now. This culture that devalues human life 
It's an, it's what happens when we as a people lose our own identity in God because mm-hmm. love your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't like a flippant postcard saying that that Jesus gave us. If we understand our own value as being made in the image of God and being held in existence by his love, we will treat others in a way that reflects that. And the culture of abortion and war and abuse, which is the whole history of humanity, but it's really come to a head right now, it feels like, is a reflection of what happens when we lose touch with that reality. But then you actually see an increase in shame because we then go make some horrible decisions, right? We we know that abortion is actually... Uh, quite prevalent in a lot of people's story. Uh, they've been touched by it. They've participated in it. And when you've detached yourself from a God who says you are not the sum of your worst decisions, and we have detached ourselves from a God who says, I love you and I redeemed you because I made you and that's it. Then we tell ourselves, well, I'm an awful person. This can never come to light because if it does, nobody will love me. There's no future for me. And so we drown that in any number of other um, unhealthy behaviors and decisions. And there's a reason that Paul says, take every thought Mm. captive, because our thoughts are incredibly powerful in how we behave, how we live out our days and teaching our children too. you know, are, are they telling themselves who are they, who they are in Christ or who they are in the world and who the world wants to define them as. But that starts with each of us taking our thoughts captive to say, is that scripturally true? Does that line up with what the word of God tells me about who I am? I mean, we see in second Corinthians, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, which means that the old is gone. Whatever the old is, your old may look not very bad or it may look really bad, but the old is gone because Christ calls us new Mm -hmm. in him, not on our own, not because we're superhuman and we figured out how to just muscle through and really live out that January one resolution, but because of what Christ did on the cross. That's beautifully said, Joe. And I think that when we feel shame in our identity and we forget who we are, one thing that is consoling to me to remember is that God made me human and he knows he made me human. God Mm -hmm. didn't make me an angel. He didn't make me another God. And so when I fall, this is something that he knows is going to happen. It's something he knew from the beginning of time, how many times and in what way I was going to fall. The question is, how am I going to respond to my to his invitation to reconciliation each time that I fall? I happen to be reading the section in the catechism called The Vocation to Chastity, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This topic of shame just kind of led me all over the place. And one place that I really found some interesting stuff that I hadn't read in the catechism that is so beautiful is in the section on chastity, starting with paragraph 2337. I really recommend this section. Just go as far as you want after 2337 because it's a treasury. But something that's repeated in this section as the catechism talks about our sexuality being the way that we interact with other humans in the world. It's the animal side of us, in a sense, the carnal side of us. We have a spiritual and a physical body, and our sexuality is a way that our physical body interacts with the rest of the world, with other human beings. And one of the things that 
the section on chastity encourages us to do is practice self-mastery. And I was reminded of how God knew we were going to fall over and over and how that is a function of being a human in a fallen world. Some of the, the things that the catechism says about this are chastity includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. How great is that? An apprenticeship in self-mastery. Just to hear from, I know, just to hear from church authority that they're not saying you're terrible when you're not perfect. They're saying human life consists in consistently practicing self-mastery, trying to get better. It goes on and it says later, a few paragraphs later, self-mastery is a long and exacting work. One can never consider it acquired once and for all. It presupposes renewed effort at all stages of life. The effort required can be more intense in certain periods, such as when the personality is being formed during childhood and adolescence. There's laws of growth in chastity, the catechism says, and it represents an eminently personal task that involves a cultural effort, for there is an interdependence between personal betterment and the improvement of society. I just find it like so reassuring when we're talking about shame and our human failures and our need to constantly get up out of the mud and take a shower and start again, that this is what God knows our life is going to consist of. And I think when we feel shame, it's often the devil lying to us and saying, you're not perfect and therefore you're a failure. You're not living up to your human potential. When it is human nature to be someone who falls, but by the grace of God is able to get back up again. Now that is beautiful and so reassuring. One thing I try to tell my girls a lot is you're not expected to know how to do something perfectly the first time. You know, it's that growth mindset versus fixed. And this was something I struggled with a lot growing up is like, if I'm not great at it right out of the gate, I'm not going to do it. And how many of us approach our Christian walk that way? How many of us look at, well, if I can't live this perfectly, if I can't follow all the rules, if I can't do everything right, then I might as well just give up. And I love that reminder that no, it is about an apprenticeship of growing and learning and getting back up and moving one step forward and then doing it again tomorrow. (laughs) And some days seem to go better than other days. The devil only wins when he keeps you hidden and therefore enslaved in your shame and in your sin. When he loses is when you say, no, not today. I will not be defined by this. And I'm going to try again, not because I'm capable, but because I have the power of Christ in me. And Paul speaks to that. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is in you, which means that we need to call on that. We need to call on the Holy Spirit to say, help us with this area where I'm struggling, whether it's my self-talk because of past choices or it's repeating this choice. I think it's so powerful that you address the issue of chastity and sexuality because so much of today's shame is in some way tied to our sexuality, whether it's our behaviors, past choices, uh, the way we see the body that God has, has given us and made us. And so being able to see that as such a beautiful offering and opportunity mm-hmm. for growth is great. Yes. Yeah. And later in the catechism, paragraph 2340, I don't know, this stopped me in my tracks. I think I'd read it before, but when I was reading it this morning, I just thought, whoa, the church literally gives us a five point plan 
for remaining faithful to our baptismal promises. And one of those promises, if you've, I, I don't know how exactly baptism is carried out in your church, Joe, but I know that we both have Trinitarian baptism. We both believe that it is an important sacrament. But one of the things that happens in a Catholic baptism is the, the presider, whether it's a deacon or a priest, will go through kind of a profession of faith with the godparents or with the person being baptized if it's not an infant because infants can't, (laughs) but they'll say, one of the things they'll say is, do you reject Satan and all his promises? And I think one of the, the lines is like, do you reject the allure of sin? And it, the, on behalf of the person being baptized, the godparents will say, yes, I do. And there are five steps in the catechism for remaining faithful to those baptismal promises and resisting temptation. And this I found in the section, again, on chastity, on living with sexual integrity, but I think it just applies to life in general. Those five steps are practice self-knowledge. So this is me commenting on that step. Who am I as a human? So I know I'm made in the image of God, but also I think with self-knowledge, who am I Lauren Enriquez. Who am I? Joanna Hyatt. We have this kind of human identity, and then we have our individual identity. And I think getting to know both of those is what this step is talking about. Number two, the practice of an ascesis adapted to the situations that confront me. So uh, that just means asceticism, self-discipline, self-mastery, what we were talking to. And that practice, it's going to look different if you're a married woman, if you're a teenage boy, if you're a two-year-old girl. It's going to look different no matter what state of life that you're in. Number three, obedience to God's commandments. We know what those are. We've got 10, 10 commandments in scripture. Jesus gave us more commandments in the New Testament. Number four, exercise of the moral virtues. So these are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Those are kind of the overarching virtues. Chastity is a virtue that's kind of underneath temperance. And then number five, fidelity to prayer. That one goes back again to what is our identity? Who are we? Whose are we? In that fidelity to prayer, I think every day we come a little closer and closer to understanding who we are. And I think it's so encouraging to know that, again, God knew God knew who he was creating when he created you, and he's not the one expecting you to be perfect. It's that lie of Satan saying you're not perfect and therefore you're bad that we have to root out by practicing these steps. And if you want to know how you're supposed to view yourself, then you have to be talking to the one who made you, both in the Word of God and through prayer, to say, help me remember who you see me as. I think you mentioned this in one of our episodes, that one of the prayers, I think, is that, Lord, help me see myself Mm -hmm. the way you see me. And that'll keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking too little of ourselves. A balanced view of who we are. And as we wrap up, I want to give this little bit of encouragement because I think this so beautifully sums up what Christ wants to do in each of our lives. So when you look at scripture, you know, the most famous, when you look at Christian faith, I would say that includes, you know, Catholic, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, the most famous symbol is what? The cross. And yet, if you look at scripture to the Israelites, uh, the cross before Christ was a shameful, cursed symbol. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you look in Galatians, Paul is is writing his letter in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And then he references Deuteronomy 21, 23, though they probably didn't call it that back then. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so when Jesus was crucified on that tree, he took on one of the most shameful, awful ways to die, not just in physical form, but in reputation and identity. And he transformed it into a symbol of hope and new life and renewal that now is the most visible, recognizable symbol in the world through all of history and has been a symbol of hope ever since then. And so for you listening, if there is something in your life, you say there, there is a shame that will not let me go in Christ. That shame can be transformed into something hopeful and renewed and a reminder of the power and the goodness of God. It is not going to be something that props you up. It is not going to be a chance for the world to be like, wow, she or he, they're so awesome. No, it will be a chance to point to the power and love of God in our lives to take that which the world says is so shameful and redeem it to be something so beautiful. So every time you look at the cross, remember that. And as we're in these days leading up to Easter, the world didn't know at that time that the cross was going to be transformed to be something so powerful. Amen. This will not be the first time we cover shame. We're going to bring other guests on. We're going to keep discussing this because it's integral to us being set free and living out lives and faiths that are vibrant and wild and beautiful. So if you've got feedback, if you've got questions, um, if you've read something or found something particularly powerful and helpful, uh, please do email us wildandbeautifulpodcast at gmail.com and... Don't be ashamed to review us, to give us that five-star rating, to share your thoughts, or to forward this on to a friend that you think today could use a little bit of encouragement.